Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in European Studies. I'm Tim Jones, and today we are literally discussing European studies, past, present, and future, published in 2020 by Agenda and edited by my guest, Eric Jones. This book is the first in a new Understanding Europe series from the Council for European Studies, which celebrated its 50th birthday last year. To mark the date, Professor Jones assembled 55 European specialists to write 45 chapters covering a range of issues, but I think it's fair to say with one big underlying theme. To quote from the chapter written by William Collins Donoghue and Martin Cagle, quote, it is no secret that European studies has suffered a setback in the academy, unquote. Why has this happened? What can be done about it? And to what extent does the setback in the discipline reflect the various crises faced by the European Union itself over the past decade? Eric Jones is the Director of European and Eurasian Studies and Professor of European Studies and International Political Economy at the Paul Nitzer School of Advanced International Studies of the Johns Hopkins University. Eric, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on, Tim. I mean, this must have been quite an endeavour to get so many people to write for one volume and and to maintain a structure. How did it take shape? well, it was, it's a good question because what we did is we went back to the leadership of the organization. This is a 50th anniversary celebration volume. Um, so we went to the historical leadership of the organization. We asked them all to contribute and they all very generously agreed. Uh, we also have a number of different research groups within the organization and each of their leadership uh, agreed to contribute something as well. Then we put an open call out to our members and anyone who wanted to contribute was allowed to submit something. And then we reviewed the contributions that were made and, and selected those that fit we- fit best. And we, I hope, came up with uh, a balanced volume, not just in terms of themes, but also in terms of <clears throat> career development and perspective and methodology. So it, it should reflect the interests as a, a, of the center as a whole. Yeah, it, it certainly came across that way. And um, I mean, how long did it take to, to that whole exercise? <laughs> That's a little embarrassing, right? We started in August with the call and we, we had the book published by March. So wow. <laughs> it was really fast. And, and I think the only reason that it worked so well is because we had great colleagues at, at Agenda Publishing Alison Housen and Steven Gerrard really drove the production process so that we got something really high quality in a very short amount of time. And as, as I said at the beginning, this is the beginning of a, of a series. When is the next one coming up and what will it be on? Well, we have a book coming out <clears throat> that's by a woman named Marsha McGraw-Olive, uh, and it looks at property rights in Russia and in Turkey. Um, but the, the series is really only just getting started. So we commissioned that volume uh, on the basis of a proposal and we assigned it to the series. But then we appointed uh, a new editorial team for the series. And that's going to be headed by, by Mark Vale from, uh, from Middlebury, Middlebury College. Uh, and, and I think it's going to be a great editorial team. I think it's going to be a great series. And hopefully 
it'll reverse some of what you identify in your introduction as the decline of European studies, particularly in the United States. Well, yeah, that, that was, I guess, the most interesting element uh, for me coming into this, because, you know, I, I have a background in European affairs, but I've never actually formally studied European studies. And it was, it was interesting to discover what it originally was as a beast. And it, it did seem to be quite a North American uh, inspired uh, <laughs> uh, animal. It, I mean, could you take us through, I mean, you've got that chapter from, uh, from Eric Blight. Could you sort of briefly take us through that, the, the, the history of the discipline itself? Well, European studies in the United States and, and the Council for European Studies actually started as a U.S.-based organization. Uh, European studies in the United States has always been a mixture of different disciplines that ranges from the humanities uh, all the way up through the social sciences. And what happened in the late 1960s was they decided to begin bringing together people from all these different disciplines in order better to understand what was going on in Europe. Let's not forget the end of the 1960s was a pretty tumultuous period in European politics, both East and West. Um, the Council for European Studies originally had a West European orientation, but was very interested in what was going on behind the Iron Curtain as well. And, and so they formed this organization and began having a biannual conference. And in doing so, they actually cemented a community that inspired some of the best scholarship that we've seen in, in American political science. And, and the, the top people would go every two years to meet, usually at the Palmer House Hilton in Chicago. Uh, and, and then eventually, gradually they expanded their membership and attraction across the Atlantic. And that changed the nature of the organization because European studies in the United States is, is a kind of a niche area, but European studies in Europe is sort of like Europe, right? So, so the, by expanding the, the, the scope of attraction, we actually brought in a much, much more diverse, much wider community, but, but also a community that regarded Europe not as something extraordinary to study, but as something that was a lived experience. And I think that's, that's changed and, and benefited the organization as well. Yeah, I, I mean, I lifted that quote from Donahue and Cagle in the introduction, but um, I'd like to add another one from, from Helen Drake from Loughborough University, something she wrote in 2017. And she said, uh, uh, quote, European studies has all but disappeared from British university curricula. Departments have closed and the subject no longer merits its own subpanel in the ranking process for funding. Do, do you think it's fair to say the discipline is in crisis in the English speaking world? I, I think it's fair to say that the way academic research is organized is undergoing a significant period of change. So <clears throat> European studies is how lots of people, lots of people collect data about Europe and they use data about Europe in their analysis. But, but the problem is, is that, that much of the analysis is based on a large number of cases, what we call large N analysis. And it's very statistical and it doesn't really seem to pay much attention to, to local specificity. And, and that's really the change. And I would apply that to Europe, but I would also apply that to Asia, to Africa, to Latin America, you name it. Um, and, and one of the things that we're trying to do is to help people understand why that specificity is important, no matter what part of the world you study. And, and, and in the United Kingdom, um, there are a few institutions that maintain that focus on, on local specificity. Uh, but they're small in number. And the fight back is to say, we miss a lot of texture. We miss a lot of content uh, if we don't take that specificity into account. And I should say, and then I'll, I'll stop this overlong answer, 
Um, if you look at what's going on in the World Bank, for example, the, the, the big international financial institutions have, have actually embraced this insight and in their application of, of recommendations for development policy now put context as the most important set of variables in trying to decide whether what works in one place is going to work in another. So I think, I think it's a, a, an argument that we're going to win at the end of the day, although we'll go through this long period where organizationally we'll be a bit more dispersed. Yeah, I, I did wonder, I mean, there was a quote uh, from uh, yeah, Helen Ducrow and uh, uh, Louis Dean Valencia Garcia, and they say, Today, European studies find itself somewhere between the study of, of the EU and cultural studies approach, cultural study approaches to the continent. And I, I, I did wonder whether there is this is a sort of a natural development, because if, if you're trying to develop sort of a cadre for Brussels and, and, and the, uh, the institutions, you've got you've got the College of Europe in Bruges, you've got Sciences Po, you've got Saish itself. Then if you uh, want to study Europe as part of something else? You've got politics degrees, economics degrees, languages, and so on. It, I, I guess, isn't this kind of a natural development that you, you're trying to cling on to something that that has this label European studies, but it's it's something that is, I, I guess, in its own way, sort of naturally declining. I think you know the the thing is is. It, if you want to study Europe, there, there are two easy ways to go about it, right? One is to, to pick a set of canonical literature and say, I'm going to study this canonical literature and, mm -hmm. and, and, and that's going to be my Europe. Or you can pick a common set of institutions that pretend to represent Europe like the European Union. And you can say, I'm going to study these institutions and that's my Europe. But the reality of Europe is obviously much more diverse, right? I mean, there, there are tens of languages that you need to confront. There are all these different national historical traditions. The whole principle of nationalism is, is something that in, in many ways is distinctly European. So, so there's just a lot of work to do. Uh, and, and, and here I would say that at SAIS, we've been, we've been determined to study Europe in, in, in the more holistic sense. So all of our students who graduate in European and Eurasian studies have to do diplomatic history from the Peace of Westphalia to the Second World War. They have to do comparative political economy of Central and Eastern Europe as well as Western Europe. And then they have to do Europe's relations with the outside world. And, and, and by Europe in that context, I mean the member states, the, the countries outside the European Union, the European Union, but also NATO, the OSCE and all the rest. So it's a huge, big study. And I think it's not surprising that a lot of people don't want to sign up for that, right? Because <laughs> that's just a lot of stuff to drink in, uh, but but our goal is to make sure that that people appreciate just how big and diverse and important Europe is. It, it, not as an actor necessarily, because as an actor, I think Europe is shrinking in its importance. But but as a collection of data about the human experience, it tells us an enormous amount when we study Europe about what we should expect to see in other parts of the world as well. Yeah. Okay, well, as, as I said, this is a 45-chapter book, so inevitably I'm going to pick out some things that interest me in particular, so I apologise to, uh, to the authors I don't uh, identify. But one, uh, I'm going to start with Erin O'Leary and her, her chapter about the English language, which is very interesting, where she talked about the opportunities that might arise for Europe out of uh, the departure of the UK, 
uh, in in the creation of a sort of a new Latin. So as she puts it, detaching the use of the English language from its associated collective demos and turning Euro-English into a post-national reconceptualization of what it means to be a collective. Do you think there's do you think there's something in that? I mean, I, I, I just heard uh, all the, the sort of, uh, you know, writing teachers that are listening to this <laughs> groan collectively, right? You know, it's like a, a dark disturbance in the force. Um, I mean, unfortunately, yeah, Globish is, is a thing, right? And it's not yeah. just in the European Union. Uh, everywhere you encounter students who work in English as a foreign language, you discover unique grammatical, syntactical, and word choice elements that, that tend to be more resilient than you might imagine. And, and, and I think that, that Aaron is right in identifying that. I, I have to admit, when I read her chapter for the first time, I almost wept. <laughs> and, and, and yet, I, I think there is a sense in which the, the ownership of the English language has passed, not just from the United Kingdom to the United States or, or from both the United Kingdom and the United States to Ireland, where they actually mm -hmm. use it well, uh, but, but, but from all these countries that are, quote unquote, native English speaking to a community across the globe that uses English as, as the basic language of, of politics, business, commerce, and all the rest. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it, it, is, it, it is very intriguing. I, I, I remember what first reading about um, monks in uh, in France, you know, early after the the Romans had left, who who were writing in French but thought they were writing in in Latin. So <laughs> you have to wonder whether English is going to go the same way. <clears throat> um, the the other uh, another very interesting chapter, a couple of chapters, one by uh, Catherine Guizan and uh, Joseph Colomer on. Um, the idea of comparative studies and the utility of, uh, in particular, comparing the EU with the de development of the US. And she talks about this idea of several founding moments rather than there being one founding moment, you know, the, 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 uh, uh, the founding of the Union in the United States and that Europe should essentially not expect to reach something like full federation in a very short time. Um, and and the column makes the same point. I, I got the impression that was quite a quite a consistent theme of of the book of the chapters and of the of the writers. Was was that a coincidence or did that reflect your own thinking? I think what <clears throat> what people have come to realize is that there is no project in the sense that, you know, I mean, you, you imagine, you know, there are these people and they're sitting around a table and they come up with a blueprint and they, they have an end goal that they're gonna achieve and then they have a process by which they're gonna achieve it. Um, there's nothing like that going on in Europe. The, in, in, instead, what you have are lots of different objectives that people are trying to achieve. Um, and one common set of instruments that they use to achieve those objectives, some use the instruments more, some less. And, and I think Catherine's point, and, and, and it's a brilliant one, is that at crucial moments, the collective use of these instruments changes significantly, and that changes the direction of travel for the community as a whole. So, so what looks when we sort of do the Whig history thing and look back mm. and everything was, is the way it was meant to be, what looks like a linear trajectory towards some goal actually can be revealed as a series of important pivots of mood or intention um, that take us in different directions. And, and that vision of Europe, I think, is 
replete in this in this volume. I mean, I, th I think everyone would agree that that if we were to have written this book 25 years ago or, or 50 years ago, then it would have been almost unrecognizably different in the way it framed the European project, uh, the way it framed Europe as a construct, and, and the way it framed both recent development and future prospects. So in that sense, uh, I, I, think, I, I think people should be reassured that this is an organic living entity that we're studying and not some, some master plan that's been, been imposed on us. Yeah, and I, I thought that that was taken up very well by the uh, Vivian Schmidt uh, chapter. The, she has this idea of um, the single market, she puts it, the single market being the shared main dish uh, for everybody and then these multiple communities. And I think she makes this very good point that, because I think there is an, there's a growing assumption that the Eurozone will essentially break away and form this core, core federation. And she, she says, um, why would people who cohere around a single currency have the ability, let alone the will or imagination, to lead in areas like security and migration? And I think particularly, for example, on security of, of Germany compared to France, um, I mean, you, you can see that there's dangers in having all these multiple communities, but it, do you think that is, do you think she's right to think that that is a, uh, a viable um, future? I think, you know, Tim, I think that, that Europe has always been that way and always will be that way because, you know, different European countries cohere around different sets of issues. I mean, the way I like to think of it is, you know, we, we talk about solidarity as though it's some kind of monolithic concept. But, but if you think about it carefully, solidarity means very different things in very different contexts. So solidarity in the face of an existential threat, like, you know, Nazi Germany in the Second World War, operates on the principle of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And you can imagine the Soviet Union, the United Kingdom and the United States being solidaire in that context. But you would never say that kind of a thing in a market context. In the context of the single market, you wouldn't say the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Um, the, the whole point of solidarity in the context of a market is everybody abides by the same rules equally. Um, and, and the point of solidarity in a welfare state is everybody agrees to contribute without ever expecting to receive in return unless it's, you know, comes up as need. And, and, and so when you imagine solidarity having different logics in different domains, you can understand why different countries want to join in different projects. And I think, I, I think Vivian is absolutely right that the one thing that, that most European countries can agree on is the participation in the internal market. And, and crucially, Craig Parsons and, and, and my colleague Matthias Mateus have done some excellent work uh, showing that, that the way the internal market works in the European Union is much more integrated and offers many fewer obstacles to trade than the way the internal market works in the United States, for example, yeah. uh, because that kind of solidarity in the United States doesn't exist. Yeah. Yes, yes, he, yeah, he makes that very good point. And, and he also makes the very good, this Craig Parsons uh, in, in his chapter, this very good point about how the extraordinary taken for granted achievement of the single market, I mean, it has essentially been, even by Europeans, I think it tends to be very underplayed as, as an achievement. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and I also think Europeans don't, don't realize that it's not the same in the United States. I mean, I think if they if they realize they overshot the mark, they they might think, well, wait a minute, maybe we 
maybe we've surrendered too much. I mean, think about it. You know, the whole idea that public procurement in Europe is open to yeah. competition from across the European Union is a pretty extraordinary concession that no U.S. state would ever concede, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Well, I, I, a chapter I really liked was was that by uh, Sean Donnelly mm-hmm. on uh, yeah, sort of, he, he takes a look into the future, the, the near future, and it's very, it's very, he sort of commits himself. You know, he's going to—he's either going to be very right or very wrong in the next ten years. Um, but I, I, you know, he he talks about how uh, he has this expectation that the U.S. has probably changed for good. You know, Republicans will remain protectionist, Democrats will believe in uh, managed globalization, and that will have an effect on all their foreign relations, in uh, in, in particular with Europe. Uh, China will consider it continue its consolidation in Asia and Africa, and the yuan will become reserve currency. The UK will lose Scotland, but not Northern Ireland. But it, I think the thing that particularly stood out for me was his call on um, what will happen to the euro in the next uh, 10 years, that there will be a resumption of the uh, sovereign debt crisis focused on Italy, but that the Germans will hold the line. And you'll have this regional division that we've seen in the last couple of years, um, and that the, the you know they will emphasize growth of the ESM, and the, you, you, we we won't get this this big push into uh, fiscal federalism that I think the markets have started to believe over the last year. Um, did you share my interest in this chapter? Is is, <laughs> is this the same? Would, would you, I mean, I've read some of your pieces since then. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd like to see what you think of that. So, and, and so I work closely with Sean and, and I think he's, I think he's brilliant, right? And, and what I love about his chapter is that he's, as you say, completely unafraid. And, <laughs> and, and this kind of future casting is, is important, not because you predict the end goal, right? Because you know, it's never going to end up like you say it is, mm-hmm. but because you show the mechanism that would be necessary to take us from the present to that distant future place. Uh, and, and there, I think Sean reveals a number of important things that we should be focusing on right now. And one of these things is the, the viability of the ESM as a bailout mechanism, because it was created in 2012 to be the permanent bailout mechanism on the assumption that when countries got into trouble, they would have to go to the ESM to borrow money. Uh, and when they went to the ESM to borrow money, they would be subject to conditions which would make them all into to good students of the European project or, or whatever, of the, the German preference for macroeconomic policymaking and market structural reforms. Well, what happened? We ended up in this big crisis with this pandemic, which is months after Sean delivered his chapter. Uh, and, and, and everybody got in trouble and everybody needed to borrow money. And they said, we want to borrow. And the Germans said, well, you're going to have to go to the ESM. And they said, no, we won't. And they didn't. And, yeah. and even though the ESM has made 240 billion euros available at virtually zero interest with almost no conditions attached, nobody is touching that money with a barge pole. It's radioactive. Mm-hmm. And, and in that context, you have to ask, whoa, you know, what's going on here, right? This is a kind of a weird fight back. Uh, and what they've done is they've created this next generation EU, which, you know, it's a temporary facility where by temporary, I mean, it'll last for the next 36 years. But, mm. but, but, but the key thing with this temporary facility is over the next 36 years, the European Commission is going to develop 
ESM style, very professional treasury operations that allow it to go into the markets to issue massive amounts of debt, far more than the ESM was ever expected to issue, uh, and to manage this debt in the way a professional you know, government treasury would manage it, uh, and, and to then redeploy that money to, to the member states. I mean, mm -hmm. when the next crisis comes, do I expect the ESM to bail countries out or do I expect the commission to bail countries out? I think, I think the political weight is going to be behind the commission and not the ESM. It, it, don't you find this a weird branding issue? I mean, you live in Italy, so you can explain this to me, but you know, the, the, the five-star movement's absolute uh, terror of going to the ESM to, as you say, to borrow money to, to help with health healthcare, you know, the, the absolute, absolute necessity. But they are in negotiations now and they are going to get tougher about the conditionality attached to their uh, next generation EU, EU loans. And I suspect that's going to be a hell of a lot tougher than anything they would have got from the ESM. Um, do you think... It, it, are Italians prepared for this? The kind of things that are going to be attached to borrow it to a to borrowing this money and b to actually being granted eighty billion euros. I mean, I think Tim. I think you know Italy a lot better than, you know, than I do. But but uh, you know, I think I think if we if we you know really push hard, there's been a big bait and switch that's taken place where they said you know oh you're going to get all this money from the commission and then. Boom, the commission is empowered with, you know, the ability to enforce conditionality that nobody ever imagined before. And mm. not just conditionality attached to the specific lending, but going all the way back into the country specific recommendations. So do I, do I think the five star movement is awake to that? <laughs> not really. But, but, but I think Mario Draghi is. And, yeah. and, and I think Mario Draghi is prepared for that. And that's part of the reason why Draghi is like, you know, even the loan component of Next Generation EU, he's, he's looking at it and going, we'll borrow only as much as we need, right? Mm -hmm. We don't need to borrow excessively. And the Spanish and the Portuguese said uh, from right out the gate that they weren't going to borrow anything at all. So, mm -hmm. so I think people have woken up to it. But, but, you know, did anybody think that they were just going to put money on the table and say, okay, take as much as you leave and, you know, don't let the door hit you on the way out? No. Right. So the question is, is do we want the commission to do it? And the reason they would prefer the commission to do it is because of the same thing that the Germans don't like the commission. They know they can influence the commission because the commission is 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 a part of their daily lives in so many other ways. Mm. The ESM exists only for one function, which is to bail out member states and to enforce conditionality. Yeah. And they can't influence the ESM, not the way it's structured currently. And so they don't want to go into it. And they're deeply suspicious of the governance arrangements of the ESM. And when I talk to people both in Luxembourg and in Brussels, one of the things that always surprises me in these interviews is that people who know the people at the ESM will say they are right to be suspicious. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, you know, you sound like you're really paranoid. And they go, no, no, no. But I mean, you know, the, the institutional logic is to enforce conditionality without political discretion, whereas the institutional logic in the commission is very different. No, I get that. Uh, but I, I, I do suspect people are underestimating um, the conditionality that will be attached to, to grants, basically to money that people are never going to get back. Um, That's yeah. right. <laughs> but I agree with you. I, no, I agree with you, Tim. And I, I had a I had a great conversation with Romano Prodi about this, 
where when the documents, the, the, the templates that the commission mm-hmm. sent out for what you need to fill in in order to get this. And Prody looked at these templates and he was like, this is the most analytically intrusive document <laughs> I've ever seen, right? Um, and, and the whole structure of this conditionality enforcement and the ability to withhold funds mm. for projects underway, this is a stick that the ESM never even imagined it could yeah. have, right? Um, and so in that sense, I think, I think you're absolutely right. People have underestimated grossly the impact that this is going to have on the commission. And we're going we're gonna to see just how effectively the commission is able to deploy that new influence. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to come actually to a piece you wrote for uh, Funcus that came out in, in January, the coming debates about European macroeconomic policy. And it's related to what we were just talking about, that you know, there's been this uh, a completely unforeseen transformation of the uh, European budgetary environment over the last year. Um, and at the same time, you've had the introduction of this uh, next generation EU package. And you sort of touch on there the idea that this whole thing will, will, should lead to a, a move away from these fixed targets for budgets, things like 3% of GDP or 60% of GDP, and more, more focus on the quality of public finance and structural reform and so on. Um, I thought that that was a very interesting point to make. And I, 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 could, could you, you know, can you elaborate on that point for us? Yeah, sure. I mean, <clears throat> just for people who, who don't nerd out over macroeconomic <laughs> policy coordination in Europe, the, the, there were two numbers that were written into the Maastricht Treaty in a protocol um, uh, that define what constitutes an excessive deficit. And they define it in terms of the flow, which is the deficit itself. And they say it's 3% of GDP. And then they define it in terms of the stock, which is the debt. And that's 60% of GDP. And these two numbers are linked by an assumption that was made at the time about what would be the nominal growth rate of the economy so that 3% deficit and 60% debt actually should work together. They should be perfectly consistent. Now we've kept those numbers over the intervening 30 years and, 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 and added to them along the way in 2012, another number which says that if your debt is higher than the reference value, remember that 60% of GDP, um, then your debt should decrease by one twentieth of the difference each year, right? Uh, and the assumption would be that you know you'd be like two or three percentage points, or five, maybe even ten percent higher than the reference value. So to say you have a seventy percent debt to GDP ratio as opposed to a sixty percent, then you would cut it by half a percent of GDP a year, and that would that would solve your problem, make your excessive deficit and debt go away, right? So that, that's the assumption. Mm. We're in a pandemic right now where Italy is going to come out of that with 160% debt to GDP ratio. Um, that means that the difference between Italian debt is and the reference value of 60% is going to be 100% of GDP. And, and so 120th of that is 5% of Italian GDP that they're going to have to cut the debt every year for 20 years. Now, that ain't going to happen, right? But, but unfortunately, those numbers that I talked about are written into European legislation. So, so right now, we're in a world of ex, uh, exception called the General Escape Clause, which was activated on, on, I think it was the 23rd of March in 2020. 
uh, and that general escape clause allows us to, to be a little bit looser with the numbers. But once that general escape clause is deactivated, those numbers become real again. Uh, and, and, and those numbers would be ruinous for the Italian economy. So what's the alternative to those numbers? And that's the point that you were making, Tim, about maybe we should focus less on the numbers and more on the quality of public finances. What is Italy doing with its money that's going to encourage growth? Because if we can get that nominal growth rate up, then the, the denominator in the ratio, because remember, we're always talking about debt to GDP, the denominator will get bigger. And as we all know, when the denominator gets bigger, the ratio gets smaller and, and then Italy's problem goes away. If you listen to what Mario Draghi is saying, everything is focused on growth. We've got to do reforms to foster growth. And in an odd sort of way, he's right. Because mm. if they can get the growth to work, then the debt to GDP ratio can come down very, very quickly. Look at what happened in the Netherlands after the last crisis or in Germany after the last crisis. And you'd be astonished at how quickly they got their debt to GDP ratios down after they ballooned in the global financial crisis. Same thing for Ireland. And, yeah. and it's all due to growth. It's not due to austerity. Austerity played a little role, but growth did the, did the heavy lifting. And that's what Italy wants to achieve. The problem is we've got a transition period. It's going to take a while to restart Italian growth. And we've got to keep those numbers from being automatically applied before that growth can take root. So let's hope that that happens. Yeah, yeah. And well, and to uh, another piece you wrote for uh, this is for current history came out in, in, in March. Did the EU's crisis response meet the moment? And you you say you say that again, a good point, responding to the initial uh crisis was the easy part, holding Europe together through the recovery and what comes after will be much harder. And I'd like to relate that to another piece you wrote for survival, where you you just leave this question open, what the uh, how the ECB will mal- manage its balance sheet afterwards remains to be seen, uh, you know, because essentially the, the ECB was used uh, in the last year to give governments the fiscal room to, to be able to uh, spend as much as was required to deal with the pandemic. What does your what does your gut tell you about how that is going to be dealt with over the next uh, five to ten years? So <laughs> it's a, it's an arm wrestling match uh, <laughs> between between the Irish uh, chief economist at the ECB, um, Philip Lane, uh, and the, the president of the Bundesbank, uh, who's Jens Weidmann. And fortunately. Uh, Philip Lane has on his side, not always, but but often um, the the markets person on the executive board, who's also German, whose name is Isabel Schnabel. And and so, so long as Philip Lane and Isabel Schnabel keep making the argument that monetary accommodation, loose monetary policy is needed, then I think we'll be okay because they'll keep buying debt and they'll keep holding on to the debt and bond prices will remain high and interest rates low and, and, and governments will be able to finance themselves pretty easily. Things are going to start to get whiffy if if Jens Weidmann begins making the case that they need to start slowing down the pace of purchases and maybe even start disposing some of the debt they already own. Um, and and the reason is that the markets will react very strongly if 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 suddenly there's less demand for Italian sovereign debt and more supply on the markets, then price is going to fall. And that means interest rates are going to go up in Italy, and that's going to shut down Italian growth. So so we want to make sure to stabilize that. The ECB keeps saying it's going to pay attention to all these dynamics. But but frankly, these dynamics are not actually written into the ECB's mandate in a clear enough way for us to be sure 
that who governs the ECB doesn't make a big difference. And I'll just leave you with a thought experiment. In 2010 and 2011, the, the, the leading candidate for taking over from Jean-Claude Trichet at the, at the ECB was a guy called Axel Weber, who was the head of the German Bundesbank. Uh, and, and he withdrew from the contest, which is what created the vacuum into which Dra uh, Mario Draghi uh, moved into place. Now, <clears throat> now imagine if he had not done that and Axel Weber had become head of the ECB, would we even be talking about the Eurozone right now? I think we would be talking about a very different entity because without Draghi at the helm, I think very different decisions would have been made. And we're still in that kind of Eltonian space with the ECB where personalities matter. And, and so these uh, names I identified is not just me sort of nerding out on who, who mm -hmm. does what and the executive board. It's, it's actually quite important for the future of the organization. Yeah. Okay. Well, coming back to uh, the book, we, uh, um, I got you on to talk about um, you, you. So you write a, um, a beginning and a conclusion. At the very end of your conclusion, you ask the question with all the challenges uh, Europe faces, whether it will be reactive or proactive and whether they will follow where they used to offer leadership. And you said earlier in the discussion now that you felt that Europe was diminishing on the global stage. Um, can you can you make that argument? What, what, is your, what is your take here? I mean, my, my concern is that despite all the efforts for, for Europe to be more proactive, it remains an, an unbelievably reactive and responsive organization. I mean, think about Ursula von der Leyen came in with her commission in, in the autumn of 2019, and her pledge was to make a geopolitical Commission where they were going to weave foreign policy into all the other dimensions of European Commission activity, it, 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 that has not been the success that we anticipated, right? It, it has not given a coherence to the Commission that we had hoped to see. Um, that's not for want of trying. I think Josep Borrell uh, ha, has tried to chart a, a coherent foreign policy path. I think, uh, I think von der Leyen has tried as well, but the member states are not supportive of that kind of proactive Europe. Uh, and the member states keep pulling it back in many respects. And, and I think at a certain point, they're gonna to have to figure that out. Now, I know Emmanuel Macron has this vision of European sovereignty and strategic autonomy. Um, I, I'm doubtful there's a consensus on that and Macron is looking a little bit weaker than he should be looking going into the 2022 election. So. I think, unfortunately, we're still in the question mark zone. I don't think there's a clear answer. And in the question mark zone, the, the default value is reactive. And that's where the European Union is. Yeah. OK. Well, uh, to finish, as usual, I've asked my guests to choose a couple of books to recommend. Usually one professional, one personal, but uh, it's up to you. What, what have you chosen? So the, the professional book is Adam Tooze's magisterial history of the last 10 years uh, crashed, right? I mean, I, I'm sorry, I'm so unoriginal on that, but it's, <laughs> but it's really an excellent book. And I say that as someone who's, who's currently teaching it to my students in, in international political economy right now. It's very detailed. It's very mechanistic. It's written like uh, an historical work. But, but I think the history that it tells is, is important and you can extract 
broad themes. And Adam writes brilliantly and, and has developed these broad themes in his more popular work. Uh, but this this is a piece of scholarship, even though it's published by Penguin. It's a you know it's a clear piece of scholarship, uh, and and very much worth reading on a professional sense. I think you'll everyone will learn a lot from it. Mm-hmm. Um, the 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 personal book is the book that I use to frame the the conclusion to the European Studies volume, which is the Once and Future King. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean the 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 story is the story of King Arthur, but it's not really just the story of King Arthur. The story is the story of civilization, how civilization comes together in a sea of conflict and, and there's agreement on the rule of law and, and everybody tries to, to abide by the rule of law, but then they get distracted and they, they go off in their own different directions and conflicts emerge. And, and at the end of the story, we, we end up in a bad place again with only the dream of that kind of harmony to, to remain. And I think that's a, a it, it was written as a cautionary tale during the Second World War. I don't think most people know that. They think it was written for Walt Disney, um, but it was written as a cautionary tale. It remains a cautionary tale. Uh, and, and as a metaphor for the situation we're in, do we want to go into the age of Mordred? I don't think so, right? But but recovering uh, the, the, the spirit of Camelot is going to be challenging, not just in Europe, but, but, but globally. Well, thank you. Well, t- today I've been talking to Eric Jones about European Studies, Past, Present and Future, published by Agenda. Eric, thanks again for coming on. Tim, thank you so much for having me. It's a great pleasure to meet you. 